Today's episode contains a couple of examples of bipolar-induced psychoses that actually led to self-harm. While there's nothing graphic, it may be triggering for some. It's okay if you need to skip this one. Do what's right for you. This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. I'm Eli Lawson, a producer for the show. This week, I'll be having a conversation with Oliver, an author and inspirational speaker. We'll dive into Oliver's tumultuous quest for happiness and his incredible transformation from a London stockbroker to a peace-teaching monk, all while grappling with bipolar disorder. And we may just find that happiness isn't where you'd normally look. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. Um, so Oliver, is that is that what you go by? Any do you have a preferred name or is it just just Oliver? Yeah, Oliver is my legal name, okay. and my monk name is Maitreya. But Oliver's easiest for this. Oh, okay. What's the origin of the monk name? Where does that where does that come from? Well, I'm an I'm an Ashaya monk. I have been for the last 18 years, which basically means that I've committed myself to experiencing more peace and happiness and to helping other people experience that if they want it. And the whole monk part is the fact that I've sort of dedicated my life to that. Okay, so this with the name change, you're kind of completely like reforming your identity as this is who I am now. That's a that's a good question. Um, I think the name change is more about giving me something to aspire to because the name has meanings that are definitely part of my essence. But maybe particularly when I first became a monk, I didn't have a lot of contact with those things. So it's it's a way of kind of strengthening my good qualities, I would say. Like a reminder almost, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Nice. Well, Oliver, uh, tell me about your books. In this quest to spread peace to other people, you you do a lot of writing, right? I do. I became a writer completely by accident. I tell was me quite, how, how it started. Yeah, well, I was quite good at writing at school. You know, I won uh, a scholarship, a writing scholarship when I was about 13. But then once I finished with um, my GCSEs, which are kind of middle grades at school, I completely forgot about writing. And then when I was in my early 20s, I just started writing this uh, fictional character who was very outrageous and a lot of fun and very crazy. <laughs> and that was just good fun. I just wrote it whenever I felt like it. But after I'd been a monk for about 10, 10 years, I think, I decided to write a book on part of my journey um, towards finding peace uh, because I thought I had quite an exciting story. Because when I was 23, I think, I got a job at Merrill Lynch and or Morgan Stanley and then Merrill Lynch in London and then in New York. And I worked as a sales trader there for almost three years. But it was one of these typical stories where I was working to try and make as much money as I could so that at some point I could then buy a place on the beach in Thailand and retire happy. That was that was my idea. That sounds but, like a great. <laughs> great goal to me yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds great it sounds like what a great idea well the problem was it 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 uh it very rarely works because even though i started to make good money and i started to save up for for that um that place on the beach i became less and less happy myself 
because mm. I wasn't following my heart. I wasn't following what I really wanted to do with my life. And instead, I was trying to logically sort of fit a career into, into, into my life so that I could then do something in the future. But what I discovered uh, many years later was that happiness and peace exist right now. And the idea that we can arrange our life in a certain way so that we'll be happy in the future is actually a myth. Because happiness exists in here, in our head. And we take our head with us wherever we go. Right. And so no matter how, how good or how bad our life circumstances become, at some point we will tend to go back to a similar level of happiness. But I didn't realize this. No one had told me that. So I thought that if I followed the, the financial freedom dream, then I would, I would end up really happy. Wow. That's really interesting. I think it's good for a lot of people to know that money doesn't necessarily equal happiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and obviously it sounds like that had some cost and detriment to your personal life and mental yeah. health, which just sounds like it wasn't worth it. No, it wasn't. So, so I left and I felt really good for about six weeks because all my stress had kind of left me. But then I started to notice that I was having the same feelings and the same negative thoughts, even though I had plenty of money, I was living in a nice place with a good friend of mine, had a great family, was in good health at the time. And I got, I panicked and I really panicked because all I really wanted was to be happy. And, and I tried this, this one way I thought would work and it hadn't, and I didn't know what to do. And then there was quite a funny story because I traveled up to Scotland and I was being given a shiatsu massage by, by this guy to try and sort of de-stress me. And it was a really good massage, but this guy kept talking about this thing called ascension and how happy he'd become with it and how it had really helped him in his relationships and his daily life and whatever. And me being a pretty sort of stubborn, cynical trader, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, dude, just shut up and give me the massage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't want to hear about peace. I just want to get a massage. So anyway, at the end of the massage, he said to me, you should look it up. You know, you should look up this meditation. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. In my head thinking, no way. You know, I'm I can do that. I'm yeah. Yeah. I, ugh, my brain's too quick for that. Then in the next few months, I had four what I call brushes with death where I nearly died or I thought I was going to die. And after the final one, I kind of realized I've got to learn to meditate because I somehow sort of saw that my kind of internal chaos and conflict was somehow attracting more chaos and conflict in my life as well. Mm. And that's really what my book is about. And it's called The Broker Who Broke Free. And it's it's here. Oh, there it is. Of it, yeah. Nice. It's really my journey from going from being a, a city trader to being a, a peaceful meditating monk. So that's that's my first book. Yeah. Mm. Nice. And yeah, just hearing that, it does kind of sound like polar opposite ends of, of kind of like the life spectrum. <laughs> um you you mentioned having having four brushes with death. Could you go mm. into that a little more? What do you what do you mean by that? Well, um, a few weeks after I'd been told about this meditation and 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 very very happily ignored ignored his advice, I went to Wales with a friend of mine, 
who who's who was in the army at the time and we were both reasonably competent mountaineers or i should probably say hill walkers actually that's probably better but we went to uh, we went for a walk in the mountains and we didn't take proper shoes with us i think he was wearing shorts i was wearing kind of like combat pants oh no yeah oh no <laughs> yeah you can see what's coming yeah yeah we had like a little button compass that you get in a christmas cracker and uh, <laughs> a bottle of water and some crisps and we thought well we'll just go out for a few hours it'll be fine so we went out and we climbed up one of the one of the highest peaks in wales i think it was called Hlonen David or something. The Welsh people will be appalled at my pronunciation. <laughs> Don't worry, they, they're not listening. No, I'm just yeah, we didn't know that. Americans are probably like, man, that's a really cool pronunciation you got there. <laughs> yeah, that sounded great to me. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So, anyway, we went on our walk, and I remember we went up about, I guess, about probably 800 meters, and we were walking along this ridge. And I remember looking back to, to talk to my friend Matt. And then looking over his shoulder in, into the distance, and I just saw this line of dark clouds. And it was like that scene out of the Lord of the Rings with sort of Saruman's kind of temple. Yeah. It's just like I just like, rewatched the movies. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so I look and I and I just thought to myself, well, I'll say on the podcast, oh no, but it was slightly more um, slightly more <laughs> A little more explicit than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and I looked at it, I thought, oh no. And the long story short is I won't tell the whole story because, you know, hopefully someone will actually buy the book. But the. Um, oh, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> basically, it was a miraculous thing because I was walking along, along the ridge and we were trying to get off and we couldn't. And then I started praying to myself as or praying to God, I should say, as I uh, always did when I was in trouble. You know, it was one of those prayers. You know, no one believes in God until, until they're really it. in trouble. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, I, I, I prayed to God and I said, just please just get us off this mountain alive because this is not good. Because it was getting colder and colder and we were both starting to really feel it. We didn't have any food. Our water was gone. And anyway, we, we saw in the distance. Well, it wasn't that far in the distance because there was so much fog. But in front of us, we saw a figure and then another one and another one and another one. And they turned out to be mountain rescue on a training exercise yeah wow perfect yeah. timing perfect timing <laughs> and they they took us off the mountain like we'd been trying to get off the mountain for a couple of hours and they just marched us off really quickly in about like 20 minutes and we were apologizing all the way down because we knew what idiots we'd been and we were just oh, I'm so sorry and oh god we're such idiots blah 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 and and that was the that was my first brush yeah wow with death mm. So you had three more of these in the span of what's like the timeline looking like for this? I think the timeline's about three to five months. So it was pretty, it was oh, pretty. Oh, wow. Heavy. Like pretty. Yeah. All together. Yeah. Yeah. And so by this fourth time you were like, what, what was going through your head after, after the fourth one? Well, I think, I think when I, I think when I was younger, when I was, I guess in my early twenties, I wasn't very, I wasn't very aware of very much. I just tended to just charge through life. Um, and a big part of that is, is because of the, the bipolar thing that, that we'll talk about. But it was almost like it was one of the first times in my life where I actually kind of stopped and thought, like, what's going on here? And actually created a bit of distance with myself and my, my circumstances. 
and and I realized to myself this is I, I have to do something different and so it was a pretty it was just a pretty sort of simple realization really it just kind of came from within me mm. Mm. and that is what that moment is what what kind of spurned you on to um be, become a monk yeah well i kind of like what the difference yeah i think that was a big part of it and so once i'd had that realization i very quickly flew back to england where i was living because i was in spain for my last experience a near-death experience whatever you want to call it and i flew back to england and i just booked in for the first um, meditation course the first ascension course that i could find and I went to the course and I had a really cool time. I really enjoyed the people there, even though I didn't really understand what they were talking about. You know, I was coming from business, London, New York, and then I was coming to this place where they were talking about peace and harmony and love and flow and all these things that I was like, yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> and what so even, what I, even I, is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And, and also this is, you know, this is 20 years ago. So the world was quite different meditation was seen as a very very strange thing back then yeah nowadays it's a lot more like if you wanted to do that now everybody would be like oh great <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah wow so so basically that's yeah that's that's that book yeah awesome it's, and it's yeah from or what is it called again it's called uh the the broker who broke free broker who broke free and awesome. it's on Amazon in Kindle or paperback. It's quite a, it's quite a little book, so you can you can read it on the train or oh nice <laughs> whatever. And it's at the and airport. It's, oh, the airport, and it's got plenty of humor in it. And and there's also there is also a lot of what, what I would say a lot of profound spirituality as well. I talk a lot about what meditation's done and how it's affected me in the present moment and and the presence itself. So I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty inspiring to the people who've read it so far. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to read it. Hmm. I'll order it after this. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so your I don't think I don't know if it's your your second your third book, I think, uh Befriending Bipolar. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one, I guess, kind of the the topic we're we're talking about a day uh today. Let's see here. You want to give a little background on that one and just kind of introduce that one for us too? Yeah, sure, sure. So this is this is Befriending Bipolar. And this is a very oh. it's a very different book to um The Broker Who Broke Free. This is a much more it's, it's a much thicker book. Um and it's about my experiences with bipolar disorder. So when mm -hmm. I was when I was 17, I I started to go more and more manic when I was in my final year of school and then after school. And, and it was like I got, I started off just getting more and more stressed and then I got quicker and quicker. And then I started to move into a thing called psychosis where I started to imagine things were happening in the world that weren't. So for example, I thought that I was being accused of a rape and that I was gonna be arrested and put in prison for the rest of my life. And it was completely real for me. And so everything that would happen in my everyday life would kind of reinforce that fear. You know, I would, the, the doorbell would ring and I'd become paranoid that it was the police coming to arrest me. So even though I hadn't done anything wrong, I hadn't, hadn't raped anyone, I started to think I had because my, my mind started to kind of lose it. 
so this got worse and worse and fairly quickly i ended up in a mental hospital in edinburgh oh wow yeah a couple of months and it was interesting because the first ward i went to was was a bit like what people a lot of people imagine a mental ward's like you know kind of a a horrifying place with very very scary people yeah and yeah you know screams and and security guards having to restrain people all that kind of stuff and it was a bit like that yeah um, but I was very lucky because my mom kind of insisted that I couldn't stay there because, I mean, I was only 17 and I was very small for my age. I hadn't even fully grown. And it would have it would have really messed me up if I stayed there. But luckily, they they moved me to another ward, which was a much more gentle place. Oh, nice. Which That's I'm good. forever grateful for. And and then what happened was in order to sort of take me down from this high, because I was going at a million miles an hour, and really, really stressed, and I hadn't slept for many days. I was just absolutely gone and fried. They gave me this medication called haloperidol, which was very effective in in, in bringing me down, but it brought me way down. Oh, two so, down. Two down, yeah. Because I think with most, as most people know, whenever we take medication, it's kind of an experiment. It's it's about finding the balance. Right. What works so, for one person doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Absolutely. So I went into a a drug-induced depression, which is definitely the worst experience I've ever had in my life. Mm. And and then I had a period where they had to take me off all medication because you have to kind of clear it out of your system. And then I went on um, antidepressants, and and I slowly started coming back to myself, which was really good. Long story short, I spent probably another year and a half trying to find some kind of balance in my life with medication, without medication. I went to university and started trying to sort of get myself back, find myself again. Yeah. And after, after that, I was put on a, a drug called lithium. And lithium, for most people, is like a long-term drug. So I was mm. told, like, when you start this, you may never be able to finish it. You may always be on it. And I said, look... Wow. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore when you're like, I think I was 19 at the time. It's quite a dilemma to face. You're still staring down the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Fortunately, because of the way I am and the way I was then, um, I didn't really give it a lot of thought. I just thought I've got to try and get well. And so I went on lithium and it worked really well. I didn't have any of those crazy highs for about 10 years and I didn't have any of the lows either. But oh, nice. Which is cool. But what I did experience was that I still got this thing called hypermania, which is is a high, but it's not as high as mania. So it's more like it's a situation where I would still, you know, talk quite quickly and I would be sort of have a lot of energy and be just chasing. I'd be chasing girls. I'd be chasing adventure. I would just be very quite an intense person. But it wasn't so bad that it ever got out of hand, you know. Mm. So no one really noticed this. Everyone just thought this was my personality. This was me, um, including me. But then after about 10 years, the side effects of the medication started to catch up on me. Uh. And I started to get very tired and I started to get headaches and I started to, well, I, I actually had a lot of problems concentrating as soon as I went on lithium, but it got worse and worse and worse. So I couldn't read a book. Because if I, if I read a sentence, I'd forgotten the beginning of the sentence by the time I got to the end. Wow. 
so I could still enjoy plenty of things, but but my brain just wasn't really working. And I didn't really have any connection with my emotions. It was like as soon as I went on, on lithium, it was like it, it cut out the highs and the lows, but it also seriously reduced what I could feel. But again, luckily for me, that wasn't a big deal because I wasn't so bothered about my feelings at that age. I was bothered about having fun, you know, and going oh, out right. in the world. Yeah. So at the time, it wasn't it wasn't a very big deal. No, that wasn't. No, no. For, for 10 years, as far as I was concerned, this is great. I'm well, just crack on with life, you know. What happened at the end of 10 years? At the end of 10 years, I started getting more and more side effects. And, and the people I spoke to, the, the um, sort of alternative health people, um, homeopaths and supplement people and lots of different people, they, they started telling me, you know, lithium's pretty toxic. And, you know, if you don't get off it, then your lifespan's going to be reduced and all these, all these things. Oh, wow. And so I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to give this a go. So I started off reducing it with the help of a psychiatrist. But very quickly, I kind of, I kind of like fell out with the psychiatrist. I didn't, I didn't like her. And rather than find another one, I just continued sort of with the help of alternative healers or a person here or there or whatever, which with hindsight was, was really foolish. But at the time, it was just the way it was going life was kind of unfolding and I was, I was going with it. So I had four and a half years of, or I had two and a half years of reducing the lithium very, very slowly. And then I went into a massive psychosis where I lived in other dimensions and was completely gone. And this went lasted on and off for another couple of years. And it was a very hard time for me and obviously for my family as well. And then finally, after about four and a half years, I woke up one morning in a mental hospital in Norway. And in Norway? <laughs> in Norway, yeah, because that's actually where I've been living. Oh, okay. For, All right. Uh, so it wasn't like you'd been living in the UK and then you just woke up and you're like, wow, I'm in Norway. <laughs> no, no, okay. it's not right. that dramatic. <laughs> All right. Um, but I woke up in a mental hospital in Norway and and they they've been very cool because they hadn't pressured me to do anything. They just were there to kind of assess me and work with me and see what we could figure out which was a really nice approach. And I just knew I have to go back on lithium. I have to, to take the side effects. So they put me back on lithium. And there's a really cool experience of that in, in my book where I talk about what it was like to take the first pill, having spent four and a half years trying to come off it and that whole investment. And um, I went back on lithium and luckily we found a lower dose that I could still be well with. So the side effects aren't nearly as bad as they were. Oh, nice. Yeah. So now I can. Really kinda... Sorry, you go. Oh, I was going to say, so, so you're still, you're able to still take it, but they just found a dose that reduced the side effects, but kept the benefits. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So now mm -hmm. I, I don't have such bad side effects. I mean, it still definitely affects me, but I can live with it. But I also get to be happy and at peace. So. It all ended well so far. That's awesome. Mm. Well, now that we know uh, a fair deal about your story, I guess we should um, kind of describe what is bipolar disorder. Speaking to someone who who doesn't know very much about it, like myself, um, how would you how would you describe it? Well, I'm I'm not trained in mental illness at all, so everything I say is just my opinion, and certainly isn't advice that that any, okay. any follow. 
But as far as I understand it, there are two types of bipolar or two main types. There's bipolar one and bipolar two. And bipolar one is, is described as a state where you experience a serious depression mm. or many serious depressions uh, that, that requires some kind of hospitalization. Oh, wow. and you, yeah. And you would also experience manias. And sometimes you would experience both at once, like a like a manic depression, as it used to be called. Because because the original name of bipolar was manic depression. Hmm. And it was changed about 20 or 30 years ago. So it's 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 like living in, in a world where you can be very, very high, where where you might think you're God or you might think you're an angel, or you think you're the Messiah placed on earth to to save it. Those are very common experiences for people with with bipolar type one, and I, I've had them too. And then you would also have these terrible depressions where uh, it feels like no hope exists and never will. And it feels like you're, you're trapped in this hellish place as, as a punishment for something that, and you don't know what it is. And there's, there's nothing that anyone can do to sort of cheer you up or, or help you get out of it. Um, the only thing that really helped me with the serious depressions were, was medication. And, and patients and, and going into hospital. And obviously the support of my family and friends was really, really important just to be there. But as far as getting me out of that deep depression, I think it was only just being in a safe place and, and giving, giving drugs, you know, for me. Wow. So, so that's bipolar one. Obviously there are people with bipolar one who have long periods when they're well and they're okay. Apparently, if it's not treated, then over time it can cause you know damage in the brain. So oh, wow. yeah, so it's very very important for people to get treatment to try to control it. At the moment, it's not regarded as an illness that can be cured. So mm. it's like a lifelong illness. Now, of course, that could change. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I have I guess like the like the title of my book. I I feel that I've befriended bipolar, but I, I haven't like overcome it or beaten it or anything like that it's more like i work with it mm. um so that's it's still, yeah it's still very much a part of your life something you gotta kind of i don't know what the i want to use kind kind terminology because you said befriending so i i don't know if deal with it is like a, a kind enough term but something along those lines that's absolutely right i think dealing with it is a very good very good okay word. all right yeah. very good word yeah so and, and also in this bipolar type one, you can have a thing called psychosis where the, the reality that we experience is different to the reality that everyone else around us is experiencing. That can often be very scary. There's, there's often a lot of paranoia in that, I think. And then you have the second type, which is bipolar type two, which is which is similar, but you haven't necessarily needed hospitalization. But you would still live with you know, depressions that come and go and often manias that come and go. I don't think that people with bipolar 2 tend to have psychoses. It may be that some do, but 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 most have to just live with an awful, a lot of mood swings that they, they find hard to control. Mm. It sounds almost like a less severe version mm. of bipolar 1. Would yeah, that... I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's still it's still something that that needs to be taken quite seriously, because one of the things that's been discovered about bipolar is that the depressions that people experience are worse than the, a normal depression. 
And so there's mm. a much higher suicide rate in people who have bipolar, whether it's bipolar one or bipolar two. So uh, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tricky thing. But it, but but I I think that usually over time people get better and better at handling it. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 273 8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. Other resources are linked in the show notes. You mentioned, um, you know, wanting to feel good, wanting to feel healthy. But we have this high and we have this low. Where is where's healthy? Is that is that here? Yeah, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think I think for me, healthy is um, or mentally healthy is being at peace. It's it's being in a state where I'm happy, I'm alive, I'm okay with what's going on. I could still feel sad, I could still feel jealous or upset, but those emotions don't completely take me and and ruin my life. So I guess it's about having a bit of balance inside here. Mm. It's like you're feeling the emotions in the proper amounts. Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah. So you mentioned um, 17 kind of being like, would it be fair to say almost like the boiling point, like the, you know, you're in the hospital, starting to get treatment, had to get it figured out. I'm curious if, if your journey with bipolar disorder goes back any further, like, did you notice it earlier on? That's a great question. I think looking back, it probably did. I, I was always a very high strung kid. I used to get very nervous and very kind of uptight, but I also got very excited and very enthusiastic about life. So I definitely had a couple of personalities that were, were quite strong. And I also had a very, like, I was very, very good with people and I could sort of, sort of command the presence within a room, even at a very young age. Like I loved showing off and doing uh, impersonations and all the adults would think this was great and fun and whatever. <laughs> so in some ways I appeared very, very confident and a larger than life character. And then in other ways I would be very, very nervous and afraid and sort of clinging to my mum's skirt sort of type of kid. And sometimes my, my parents would just, they would just take me off school. My mum would just take me off school every so often because I was just, I just got so sort of, uptight and stressed out and it was all just too much for me so it was almost like i was oversensitive hmm. mm. i can i can imagine that being kind of difficult to recognize in a child because during that you know period of your life you're much more emotionally volatile than you are normal or you are as an adult um so i could see that being difficult to, to kind of pinpoint did your parents notice this too were they like did they ever think okay like maybe the, there's something that needs to be investigated here i don't think i don't think mentally i mean they're very they're very caring parents um i mean fortunately my dad's the type who just you know just get on with life and unless your arm's falling off you know it'll be all right just keep going yeah <laughs> yeah which, which to be honest for for a young guy is is, a, is really good um, particularly because I had my mum there who was very much the sympathetic type. Mm. So I had like a nice balance there. I was very lucky in that way. So I got to learn to be brave and to be tough, but I also had that 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 love and that nurturing in the background. 
so that and and I don't I, I don't think it's very common for people to have that. So I feel I feel lucky um, for that. But I don't think that at any point until I became ill did anyone really think that there was anything mentally wrong with me. I think it was more just like I was the way I was, and I was I was high strung and good fun, and you know that was life. Mm. It's different in those days because none of us were nearly as aware of how, how we're doing and things like mental health or, you know, it was much more, uh, at least where I, where I lived, it's much more about, you know, you get on with life, you try and have fun, you try and do the right thing. Life goes on. Mm. Right. Mm. The unfortunate part is that mental health isn't something you can just, just wish away or wish was better. Mm. It requires work. It requires treatment. And it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely definitely a challenge. Mm. Yeah, I should have. Sorry, I'm looking at the questions. I should have like bolded them in the. No, no problem at all. Um, you mentioned. I keep saying you mentioned, but when you outlined your story, there were there were a number of different points. Um, one was that your both. It, it sounded like both your. What's the proper word? Is it is it manias? Is it manias mm -hmm. and depressions? Is, are those like the two? Yeah. Okay. Um, you talked about your family kind of bearing with you through it. What was what was the effect that this had on on your life and your family and like kind of the circumstances around you? Well, I think I think I should probably split that into the effect had on my parents and the effect I had on my wife and stepson. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. Family units. Well, I guess on my parents, I think with uh, my mum, I think it was when I first became ill, it was really difficult for her because her mother had committed suicide with bipolar. So she was facing, you know, her child with the same in the same situation, you know, being ill with this horrible illness. And so I think initially it was extremely hard for her. But I also think that she had to just sort of get on with it and, and try and help me and try and get me into the right hospital and, and sort things out. And I think initially for my dad, I think it was more, he didn't really absorb what was going on. He was, he was there in the background offering support and he came to visit me every day in hospital, as did my mum. And that was brilliant. And he was very caring and loving. But like I say, he's always been the type to not let things affect him too much. But, but from my perspective, in a good way, not in a kind of shut down way, more like, a, well, here's the situation, let's deal with it. Like, so more sort of practical love, which was yeah. really helpful. And my mum was much more, gave the sort of the nurturing, yeah, the maternal love. And between the two of them, I think it, I think it shocked them quite a lot. I think it was very, very stressful for them. They had to they had to deal with a lot on top of already stressful lives, and then they had to deal with all this. So I think it was it was pretty hard for them. But I also think that since I've I've written my book and and I went through a lot of my book with them and asked them you know what they remembered what they thought about certain things to try and get more balance in the book, and I think that process was really really good for all of us, very kind of healing. Kind of working through it, yeah, years later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's remarkable. You I'm sure I'm sure you know this already, but I didn't realize just how good it is to talk about things. 
and and particularly to talk about things from a space where there's there's a little bit of distance so we can you know we can see the other person's point of view and i'm not too emotionally um sensitive you know i'm able to hear what they have to say without being sort of hurt or freak out or whatever but just to be have a more kind of adult conversation about yeah. just to to let the emotions be there but not to not to try and blame anyone i think that's so important to try to keep blame out of out of these discussions and these situations because when i look at life i don't see people to blame i do see everyone i know doing the best they can with what they have learned and how they see the world and that even goes for people who are doing bad things you know when you actually speak to them you discover that they are doing their best and that doesn't mean that they should be allowed to do bad things that's not what i'm saying but what i am saying is that if we if we enter life from a perspective of that was wrong this person is evil if we start to to demonize anything no matter how justified that might seem then we create an enemy and and nothing good comes from that and so i think from this whole bipolar thing and also from the the meditation that i've done you know for the last 20 years i've seen the benefits of of talking and and trying to solve situations rather than trying to make anyone wrong right yeah because um i i couldn't agree more i see this particularly in like not to really delve into it specifically but i see this in like the political climate of today in um so many areas and i i agree totally that you know, creating these enemies, dehumanizing these people and not seeing them as as like you is it's it's more harmful than good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so moving on to my my wife and my stepson, I think um I think it was really hard for them when I was ill, because you know, this reasonably stable influence in the family had disappeared. And and I was mad. I mean, I was absolutely mad. At one point I remember running into our living room and just looking at my wife and running past her and trying to jump out the window because I thought aliens were chasing me. And wow. she, she grabbed me and, and pulled me in and I was struggling to get out. And luckily I was, I'd lost so much weight and I was so weak that she managed to pull me in. And then 30 seconds later, we were sitting on the sofa laughing about what happened you know I was back and it was like well that was trippy you know and all the nervous energy and we were just kind of like laughing oh my god you know whatever and then bang two minutes later I was gone again and I ran off into also so that so poor poor lady had to experience things like that and my stepson also you know obviously this stable figure in his life was was not stable and and was scary you know it's scary for 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 anyone actually often to see mentally ill people unless you know they've been working with them and so that was that was tough for him and also the amount of attention that i needed that he should have been getting you know as the youngster in the family there were periods where it was all about me and i think that was hard for him too mm. so i having and having said that there's an awful lot of love that's being created in the family as well because of it because we've all had to be a lot more honest with each other than maybe we would have been and right. we've all had to be a lot more vulnerable i've particularly had to really learn to listen to other people and, and absorb how they see things 
So there has there have been silver linings. There have been good things that have come from it. And perhaps, sorry, the final thing I'll say about this would be that it's definitely helped all of us grow as human beings. You know, when we go through challenges, as, as I'm sure you know, when you go through challenges, yeah, it's not fun. You don't necessarily want it to happen. But often you emerge from it a better person and a stronger person and a more understanding, compassionate person. And a big part of bipolar for me has been about that. Yeah, it seems to have almost almost reshaped your life going from, you know, becoming a monk and, and you know, making it your mission to spread that um, peace and happiness to others that you have you've gained over the years. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious about this because it's, you know, your younger self's goal was make a ton of money, go retire on a beach in Thailand. Like that sounds, <laughs> nothing sounds wrong, wrong to me with that. Um, but having, is, is it fair to say that, you know, your bipolar disorder had a large part in kind of like reorienting the track of your life and kind of just reshaping what you were going to do with your future? Yeah, it did. It did. When when I was younger, I was very, I was very confident. I was probably overconfident. I don't think I had sort of true inner confidence, but the sort of the day to day, I was very confident. And I pretty much thought that I knew it all as well. Mm. You know, I got this covered was was what I sort of thought. And so I was entering life as a, as a young man who who didn't really have a clue, but thought I did. And going through all the stuff with bipolar, it kind of it kind of hammered me into facing myself and facing my weaknesses and facing that I couldn't have the life that I'd wanted. Like it, I could never create it. I, I wouldn't have the resources, the mental and the physical resources to do that. And that maybe personal relationships would be challenging for the rest of my life. Maybe I'd always potentially be I don't, yeah, I won't use bad language, but pain in the neck, you know, because that's one of the things that I experienced a lot of when I was sort of hypermanic. I, was, I wasn't sensitive to people's feelings. I could be unkind. I could be rude. You know, I could also be great fun. So it was a weird, weird mix. But yeah, I think um, I've forgotten where we were. <laughs> oh, no problem. <laughs> I'm, no, no, no. You, you totally answered the question. I'm... Um looking back on it now would you say are you are you happy with with how it went are you happy with how it kind of reshaped and, and changed your trajectory that's a really good question um i feel that through the sort of the spiritual path that i've been on that i found a lot of peace and happiness and contentment my mind is, is very quiet compared to what it used to be like. So I'm a naturally happy, alive person, and I'm really grateful for that. If I don't take my medication, that disappears. Just so, like that? Yeah, yeah, within a couple of days, two or three days, probably. So I'm one of these people where I'm in the situation where I have to take quite tough medication, mm. but I'm genuinely happy. And so I think what bipolar has sort of forced me to do is it's forced me to discover a form of happiness that doesn't rely on me getting what I want. And it doesn't rely on me having a lot of freedom to do whatever I want and have experiences and, 
you know, like in my life, I've I've run the London Marathon. I ran the New York Marathon in a kilt. I've done. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was great fun. But after a while, I regretted it because because all, all of your fellow Americans, they loved it so much. They just kept talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I got more, more it was too popular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I've done a lot of things. I've lived in different countries and I've been arrested a couple of times and, you know, all these adventures. <laughs> and um, and then I guess five or ten years ago, that all stopped when when I got sick. And now I'm not in a place where I could go back to doing that. You know, I have to I have to be careful with myself. I can't I can't just fly somewhere. Um, because you know I could get ill. You know I have to be a bit careful with things like that. So what's happened is I've I've learned to find happiness within myself. So, uh, and interestingly enough, the more of that that I've discovered, the more my life has just kind of become more happy. So the things that in my life that I really enjoy now are things like my my relationship with my wife and my parents and my friends and my stepson. Those are really important to me, and they're really nourishing. They're not like exciting travel the world with them relationships, but there's a lot of love there. And things like um, watching rugby uh, on the television or going to a match, I just, I love it. And before it's just, I watch a bit of rugby, it's fun, you know, but now it's like I'm able to to really kind of suck the enjoyment out of a, out of a simple life. It's like kind of all the little things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just be present and and really enjoy the moment rather than worry about stuff in my head. You know, I don't I don't worry anymore, and I rarely get stressed. And if I do get stressed, I I laugh about it, and then I just go and rest, and it's all fine. So yeah, yeah, my um, bipolar and 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 the meditations help me a lot in that respect. I'm glad to hear that that it's had that. You know there is a silver lining to this because um it does sound difficult what you're describing and i'm just i'm happy to see that you have that you're doing well thanks thanks yeah this was um we, I, we talked a little bit about this in the email but um kind of a, a thought experiment question is as i was as i was doing some research on this uh to prep I noticed that there are a lot of like many pretty famous creatives, either writers or authors or uh, sorry, uh, writers or artists, yeah. you know, the list goes on um, of people who are thought to have some form of, of bipolar disorder. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all. Has it, have you noticed this effect on your creativity? Mm. Yeah, I think I have. I've, a lot of it I've noticed in the reverse. So, for example, when I when I started taking the high dose of lithium, my creativity pretty much disappeared, as did my sort of sensitivity to life my, and my emotional sensitivity kind of disappeared. Luckily, I was on a very high dose of lithium. So a, a lot of people don't experience that if they're on lithium, which is a good thing. You know, they their emotions are normal. But I definitely noticed that the that what's going on in my in my mind can can very much control how i experience life so for example when i was um when i was growing up i was very creative i was uh, i was very good at art very good at like pencil drawing and i liked to 
just make things and build things. And I was just, I had loads of ideas. I was a very kind of creative type of person. That's my personality type. And I do think that when I was in some, some of the manias I've had, it was obvious that if I'd been in the right, a different situation, I could have written an incredible book or downloaded heavenly music from somewhere, you know, in the creative sphere, whatever you want to call it. So I do think that often in manias, people are put in touch with experiences that aren't normal, but that a lot of people have had. You know, there, there are a lot of people who, who have got, got done something. They've climbed a mountain or they've taken a drug and they've had this incredible creative experience and they've produced a art of some form or whatever. And I do think that, that bipolar can give people access to that. But for me, the price is just too much to pay because whenever I was in a mania, I always ended up in a depression afterwards. Mm -hmm. And manias can feel like the most wonderful experience that anyone can have. Like a couple of my manias were, they were so euphoric and beautiful and blissful. It was like I was in heaven all the time. But then there's the come down. But the drawback, and, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, so I do. I mean, people think that, you know, Mozart and a whole bunch of people were, were bipolar. And, and I guess that's definitely quite possible. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for engaging in that with me. I know it's not super relevant to to what we're um, we're talking about today, but it yeah, it was just something that kind of sparked in my mind. Um, Eli, you can ask me anything you want, mate. Okay, <laughs> thank you. You can ask me about the Scottish rugby team if you want. <laughs> I'm not a huge. I don't know much about rugby. I don't think that's a big thing here. Um, no. But yeah, I'll have to watch. I'm, I'm like adding stuff to my list to do, and I'll have to, I'll have to watch a rugby game. Um, you've touched on this already quite a bit, but if there's any more thoughts you have on it, I just want to ask this question too. Um, how has having bipolar disorder helped you become an advocate um, for others struggling either with that or just maybe struggling to find peace and happiness? Yeah, well... I've, I've always enjoyed helping people. It's always made me feel good. And over the years, I've learned that helping people is one of the best things that anyone can do for their, their happiness and their mental stability. Helping people is, I mean, we should be taught it as a subject at school. It's such a good thing to do. And it's such a natural thing to do. You know, when you look at young children, they so enjoy helping. And they're so willing to be nice to each other if they if they get the chance, you know, if they realize that someone's fallen over and needs comforting. They rush up there with a big smile and they help help them. And so for me, helping's always been really, really important. And when I became an Ishaya monk, that that became more important to me because I'd actually kind of aligned with a tradition that was about helping. It was about serving in, in whatever way we saw fit. And so initially, once I become an Ashaya monk and I started teaching the, the meditation, I, 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 that was sort of my way of helping. But then when I had the, my final sort of episodes and I'd had that really tough few years and I recovered, I suddenly realized that I could help people who had mental problems um, and I could help their family and friends. 
and I could help doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists purely because of what I'd been through and the fact that I'd managed to find some sort of peace with it. So I don't know how much help I would have been when I was right in the middle of everything and fighting bipolar and denying it and, and just having a lot of issues with it. But once I'd kind of emerged from that, I thought, gosh, I can actually help people. And then I had the coolest experience ever because I gave a talk to a bunch of psychiatrists in Oslo. And these obviously very intelligent, very scientific people. And I was talking to them about my experiences with bipolar and they started asking me questions and their questions were so humble and open and genuine. I was, I was really touched by it. They weren't sort of coming from this place of I'm a doctor I know or anything like that. They were genuinely interested in my experiences. And so I, I, answered, I answered them as best as I could. And then one of them came up to me at the end um, because I'd been talking about the importance of love in psychiatric treatment. Mm. Because I think that love is something that's massively underrated in the mainstream world. We tend to, to keep love as like romantic love. And we, you know, there's a few, quite a few movies about that. Right. And, and then we have sort of family love or love of your football team or brotherhood or, you know, whatever. We have kind of, there's a bit like, of love around. Romantic or, and then like your group love type deal. Yeah, group love, exactly. Can you think of any other types? Oh, let's see. Um, maybe like a certain school or like university, um, maybe a job. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if a lot of people, they might not see their job as like their, uh, <laughs> their group um, country, yeah. maybe like, like kind of like nationalistic type. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's, there's a lot of places in society where there isn't a focus on love. And, um, and what I saw was that if we consciously try to be loving, then it completely affects everything around us. And this might be something that your listeners are interested in. So th there are certain situations that we have in our life that feel anything but loving. For example, it could be a job you don't like, or it could be part of your job that you don't like. Or it could be um, a family member that it just rubs you up the wrong way. Um, or someone that you know you hang out with but you'd never say you love them but the interesting thing is that as a human being to try and force ourselves to love someone is a waste of time it's totally totally counterintuitive but to have the intention to show kindness which is a form of love to that person or that situation it starts to change it and it starts to create love even if we don't feel loving and that's a phenomenal thing to explore because if there's someone you don't like at work and you buy them a coffee or you hold the door open for them or you ask them how they're doing, even if you don't care how they're doing, you start off. It's like it's like it's almost like fake it till you make it at the yeah. start. Yeah. You will start to notice that things change because what normally happens with 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 love is that most of us, we are trained to think, well, I will love once that person shows me. Once they show me that they love me, then I love them, you know. But it's actually the other way around. To really love someone, you have to risk not being loved back. So you have to risk showing love and they don't like you or they get put off or they disappear or they still think you're an idiot. <laughs> so that's that's just a bit of a digression. But if you want to, you can explore that. It's really fun. Um, 
so anyway, I just saw that having more love in mental health would make a big difference. Um, changing the wards so that there were more pretty pictures on the wall or artwork or whatever. Um, telling the nurses and the doctors how valued they are, trying to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy so that we can focus more on people. Even things like, like I give lectures sometimes just talking about love and, and how to apply it and how it can affect situations and just letting people know that by being consciously loving they're making a massive difference is enough because so many of these medical um, professionals are full of love not all of them by any means but a lot of them they have a lot of love that's why they get into it but to actually start to talk about it and reward them for showing love and to give them the time to show love it's going to have a positive effect on all the patients and eventually it'll save money because people will, will get better quicker. Right. Yeah. A lot of, um, even like government officials or like people, you know, kind of the people giving care or the ones responsible for it don't see those long-term effects, really long-term benefits. Um, and that's, it's an important thing to, to educate them on. Yeah, I think so. I do. Um, have you read, do you read any Brene Brown? No, I've watched okay. it. All right. <laughs> it was it was funny as I was listening to you talk about talk about love and particularly loving people who you may not particularly like. Um, she her work is based on vulnerability and you know taking that risk and opening up. Because her her basically her theory is by opening up you can foster a more meaningful connection, uh, with others pretty much wherever you go. And so I heard I just heard a lot of parallels so that's why i was curious yeah i would agree with that completely mm. right and i think i mean even for for stuff like this like the basis of mental health care is about love and vulnerability because it's you know it's people like you being willing to speak out about their stories um and it's and it's other people being willing to be vulnerable and listen to throw their opinions inside for a little bit and just listen yeah, that's very true. Very true. So anyway, just to, I guess, to round up that story, at the end of the talk, this doctor came up to me and he said to me, I really, really liked what you said about love. It really, really touched me. And uh, I said, oh, that's cool. You know, thanks. And he said, I've been thinking for the last couple of years that, that maybe I have to quit my job because I deal with the most severe psychiatric cases in Norway, so seriously ill people, cr criminally ill people, who a lot of them who have no, no hope and no one really knows how to treat them, what to do with them. And he would treat these people and if they got better, he would never know because as soon as they started to get better, they would go to another hospital. And if they relapsed, he would know because they would come back in front of him. So it's like his whole So he world, only ever got the, the bad. He only ever got the bad. He only ever saw the bad news. And, and he said, I was, you know, I was thinking of quitting, but I'm so excited by all this love stuff you've been talking about that I can't wait to get back to my patients and con consciously play with it, consciously play with love. And that for me was really heartening. I just thought that's so cool. That is awesome. So just by, I mean, even... It, it must be rewarding because you're you're helping people with with your story and what you've gone through and you're getting to see it in front of you yeah it's right. it's awesome it's awesome
Yeah. Yeah. I can die happy. <laughs> yeah. Next time you have a brush with death, you'll be like, all right, it's, it's no problem this time. <laughs> um, and kind of wrapping up here, there's just, I think you've covered pretty much everything else and uh, eloquently so. Thank you. How can people like you and me or just everyday normal people um, help others who are struggling with similar similar things? I think you may have just actually may have just touched on that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think there's a couple of things that I can think of. The first is that if if someone if someone is seriously mentally ill, you know, if they're really struggling or if they're thinking about suicide or death a lot, to encourage them to go to a doctor is 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 that's the first place as far as i'm concerned it's like try to get them or encourage them to go into the medical system because once they're in the system no matter how good or bad the treatment they get at least they're in the system and so at some level they're being like looked after right so that would be my first thing would be you know don't try as, as a helper don't try and take on too much yourself get them into the official channels first and, and then you can kind of think about how you can be a support and then once someone's you know got professionals around them i would say it's important to realize that it's the illness that is expressing not them all the time so if they are mean or if they don't want to see you or if they say hurtful things realize it's an illness speaking it's not them and then when they are in a place where you can talk probably the best thing to do is to ask them how you can help them mm. You know, what is it that they need? Do they want to just know you're in the background and they can text you whenever they want? Or do they want to be visited in hospitals? Or do they need help with using the computer because they're feeling a bit confused at the moment? So I think that's what I would say. Yeah, but I can't stress how important it is to, to get professionals involved in, in mental problems. I think it's really important, yeah. Awesome. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for, for coming on and doing this, um, sharing your story and providing some education about what bipolar is and also how to, how to help with it. Um, I can see, I know it's your mission to spread peace and happiness and you're already, you did that for me. So I'm, <laughs> there's another person you can add to the, uh, to the list. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Hmm. Well, thank you. You've been a fantastic interviewer. You're so sort of on it and sensitive to what's going on, and you ask really good questions. I, I appreciate feel very, that. I feel very relaxed talking to you, so thanks very much. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Eli Lawson, Lance Bordalone, John Panicucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Oliver for sharing his story this week and being so courageous and open. You can find a link to his work in the show notes. To go beyond the show, connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. Please leave us a five-star review and share with others wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. New episodes of Unsilent come out every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Finally, remember that whatever you're going through, you don't have to do it alone. Be Unsilent. We'll see you next week.